Okay, gather round while I tell you a story. This story has a lesson. It will teach you how to be good, so pay attention. Rolling your eyes, digging in your heels, crossing your arms in bemused indulgence somewhere on the spectrum between hope and derision. <laughs> I'd like to begin tonight by asking, how do we respond to stories that claim moral jurisdiction? Well, contemporary cultural production, novels, films, TV, even video games, is marked by a certain cynicism toward the idea of story as a medium for moral instruction. We're doubtless familiar with the cultivated rejection of didactic or obvious moralizing on the basis of taste. That is, we might think a morally good story can't be an artistically good story. It's a little on the nose, a bit preachy, uh, heavy-handed. We're familiar with these ideas. But in addition to finding obvious moralizing unsophisticated, we're probably also at least a little wary of the very idea that stories are capable of moral teaching. We might be uncertain of the moral credentials of a given writer. Didn't she tweet something ugly last year? Isn't he a literal Nazi? Uh, <laughs> or we might be suspicious of moral certainty in general. We might ask, how is it possible fundamentally to know right from wrong? Big question. And more, even if one possesses moral clarity, how is it possible to teach such a thing using the notoriously hydra-headed medium of narrative as a mouthpiece? The idea that a story might have a certain moral teaching and moreover that readers would have an uncomplicated access to that teaching is a difficult one to maintain in the face of such multiplicity and flexibility as we are accustomed to think that stories possess. The meaning of a story is, as most of us has, have discovered either in conversations here at the college or elsewhere, a slippery thing. In fact, as a past teacher of literature at other institutions, <laughs> I've even met strong resistance to the idea that any proposed meaning of a story can be ruled out. My first day on the job as a classroom instructor of literature, a student proffered a reading of Edmund Spencer's allegorical figure for sin, incarnate in a horrifyingly monstrous dragon who mercilessly devours her own children even as they feed on her living flesh as a tender evocation of motherhood. When I suggested to the student, not ungently, that such a reading could not be supported by the text, he was shocked, as were many of his classmates. Literature, they were under the impression, could mean not just many things, but anything. And if this is so, it's hard to imagine how it could teach us something as persistently true as a moral precept. And yet, we can't seem to escape the idea, not only that stories are morally influential, but that they are valuable for just this reason. There is, of course, a long tradition of according moral weight to storytelling. Plato's banishing of the poets from the Republic gives us the negative of the picture. If storytellers can corrupt, they must be able to influence our behavior. But philosophers and poet prophets from every world tradition have also taken the positive stance. That is, stories written well and read rightly can make us better, even bring us closer to the divine. Even now in the orgiastic flourishing of binge-washing but bleh, <laughs> It's such a good phrase, I promise. In the orgiastic flourishing of binge-watching bloodbaths. <clears throat> thank you, thank you. Yes. <laughs> Even in those times, we still expect the stories we read or watch to teach us something. This is perhaps most evident to me as a parent, but this is not a standard we apply only to children's stories. 
Sure, as adults, we might be more willing to indulge in morally questionable entertainment, and we certainly have more freedom to do so. And we might imagine that we are less susceptible to whatever messages, explicit or implicit, we take in. But we still assume that stories can and should instruct us, challenge us, and better us. Doubt in the room on this one? People these days, you may be thinking, just want to be entertained. They want sex and blood and cute baby goats riding on tortoises. <sighs> Substance is out and style is in. And yet, books are still being banned. We have no doubt, if we really examine our assumptions, that stories have moral force, even as we vibrate in our seats. <laughs> I just saw your signs, I'm sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> Even as we vibrate in our seats and swim in 3D alien entrails, we still believe that stories have moral force. And what I'd like to ask today is how exactly does story wield its moral influence? Does it gain moral clarity, when it has it, at the cost of the particular pleasures of story? Are the moral power and entertainment value of stories at cross-purposes, or can the two oxen somehow be yoked together? Do we have any justification for trusting to stories for moral guidance? Or are we kidding ourselves about our true motives, dressing up our desire for popcorn as a quest for self-improvement? Suspicion of and resistance to morally didactic storytelling, that digging in of heels you may recall from the moment I told you I was here to teach you how to be good, might ring as evidence of modern decline, a decadent exhaustion of the truest functionality of art. But it turns out that uncertainty about the right uses of story was not new even in Chaucer's 14th century milieu. Though Chaucer's pilgrims do indeed sometimes clamor for moral stories, they do not always understand stories as simply instructive or even primarily instructive. In fact, the Canterbury Tales concerns itself with just this tension, as evidenced by the terms of the game that motivates and structures the work. A group of pilgrims, who in the high spirits of spring have each set out to journey to Canterbury to seek blessings at the shrine of Thomas Becket, encounter each other at the inn of Harry Bailey, where he unifies them into a single company of travelers around a sort of wager. The terms are these. Each of the 30 pilgrims will tell two tales on the outward journey and two tales on the inbound. How many is that? 30-ish pilgrims, so that's, you know, you guys are all taking math. How many tales is that? <laughs> a good number. <clears throat> the terms are these. Each of the 30 pilgrims will tell two tales on the outward and two on the inbound. The one who, in the judgment of the host, tells the tale with the most sentence and solace will win the prize and be treated to a sumptuous meal paid for by the others. These words, sentence and solace, are important for us to consider in some detail if we're to understand exactly what the pilgrims and the host consider to be a good story. Sentence carries a wide range of meanings, from simply indicating the content, as opposed to the style, to lofty judgment, authority, maxim, dictum, noble weighty matter, and decision, judgment, verdict. Solace, on the other hand, as we can see in our own words, solace, is associated with comfort, but also with pleasure and delight. From the beginning, then, we are asked to consider stories as pleasing us, as well as offering us weighty and decisive judgments. Sometimes the pilgrims want so lost, to be sure. Merriment is one of the explicit purposes of their fellowship. And many of the tales do provide raucous entertainment. But they also ask for sentence. They want stories to instruct them and the tale teller to teach them. Tell us some mortal thing that we may lead us some wit, they ask. Tell us some moral thing so that we may learn wisdom. And why shouldn't such instruction be easy to come by? 
We're on a pilgrimage to a holy shrine. Our group is populated by holy men and women of various orders. Wisdom, learning, and serious moral instruction ought to be available among such tellers. But the request for some mortal thing turns out to be a fraught one, even for the decidedly unmodern and probably not so very cynical and debauched as we Canterbury pilgrims. Particularly when tale tellers set out explicitly to provide moral instruction to their listeners, when the moral of the story is presented in a concluding epigram stating the moral of the story, something seems to go wrong. Let's begin by taking a closer look at the physician's tale. This is a tale whose, story, whose teller believes he has its moral firmly in hand. The story, as the physician tells us, in case you haven't read it, is taken from Livy. It tells of a hyperbolically virtuous young virgin named, you guessed it, Virginia, and of her death at the hands of her father. Her father takes the lamentable course of murdering his own daughter in order to prevent her abduction and rape by a powerful and corrupt judge who perverts the justice of the courts and solicits a false witness in order to have the girl delivered to him. After a tearful scene in which the father, Virginius by name, though presumably not himself a virgin, beheads his only child, said father delivers said behead to the court, whereupon the townsfolk finally riled to some response, storm the court, imprison the false judge, who then commits suicide, and threaten the false witness with hanging. The father, whose moral code is surprisingly flexible in this matter, forgives the false witness, but other sundry people are hanged. The end. The moral of the story, says the physician, is forsake sin er sinna you forsake. Forsake sin before it forsakes you. Yes, if you live a sinful life, it will get you in the end. Conclusively conclude it. Meanwhile, the beheaded virgin is leaking stage left. <laughs> and if that excellent was her beauté, a thousandfold more virtuous was she. And if her beauty was excellent, she was a thousand times more virtuous. Imagine Virginius delivering the physician's moralizing conclusion with the head of thousandfold virtuous Virginia dangling from his hand. If you lead a sinful life, it will get you in the end. Something's wrong. Certainly, the story the physician tells lends itself to moral example, and neither Chaucer nor his physician are alone in using it to such ends. Livy, for instance, offers it as an example of political and judicial decline. But Chaucer's version differs from other more or less comfortably interpretable versions. Its moral import is disturbingly unsettled, as revealed by the host's horrified response. Our host had gone to swear as he were wood. Haro, quod he, be nihilist and be blood. He cannot speak in terma, but well I would, thou dost mean her to erma, that he almost have caught a cardinacle by corpus bones, but he have triacle, or else a draught of moist and corneala, or but I hear anon of merietala, mean her to is lost for pity of this maide. Our host began to curse like a crazy person. Good Lord, he said. I mean, Jesus Christ, I don't know a lot of fancy doctor words, but I do know your story hurts my heart so bad I might have an infarction. <sighs> By dog, I need something sweet or a nice cold malty beer or a happy story stat or my heart's gonna break. I feel so bad for the girl. The host can hardly stand the physician's story and his feeling for Virginia prompts him to offer an alternative to the physician's reading. The physician tells us that the story illustrates the wages of sin. Here am I men sin who sin hath his merit. Here may men see the rewards of sin. We must assume the sinners being rewarded here are the evil judge Apius and his compatriots. 
but the host, led by his pity, focuses on the implications of Virginia's violent end, which comes in spite of her virtue and beauty. He sees fortune and nature as the key forces at work here, rather than the physician's more orderly world of sin and punishment. His reading is a direct riposte to the physician's, even recalling the physician's very phrase about what men might say. Men might say that yiftus of fortune and of natura been cause of death to many a creatura. Men may see that gifts of fortune and nature bring death to many a creature. This reading is entirely different than the tellers. It posits no just rewards and punishments, and instead suggests a capricious and unpredictable natural order, haunted by the vagaries of chance. But why should the host, and perhaps we with him, be led to such a moral quagmire by this tale? Some doubt about the appropriateness or effectiveness of moralizing may be raised by the sheer awkwardness of the physician's ham-fisted moral assertions, both at the conclusion of his tale and in occasional asides and interruptions. But the strongest warning against conclusive moral readings, that is, readings that are both decisive and final, comes at the climax of the story, Virginia's death, which is laid on her as a sentence. We should recall here that the game proposed by the host takes sentence as one of the two duties of the Pilgrim's Tales, and that sentence in a story is its meaning, purport, and instruction. The physician himself reminds us of the associations of the word sentence with a story's fundamental meaning. His tale, he says, is no fable, but knowen for historical thing notable. The sentence of its sooth is, ut of dut. The tale is no fable, but a known and notable historical thing. The sentence of it is true, without doubt. When directly following this reminder, we get the word sentence five times in the space of about 50 lines, we may justly associate the other uses we will see, legal sentence, judgment, official statement, with the sentence that is the lesson of the story. And it is sentence that kills the girl. This is what you have on your handout. There's a longer selection on your handout where I've, I've taken some parts out so that you could see the, the sentence and the word here. And my uh, modern English version or rendering is also there on the handout. Um, it is sentence that kills the girl. Both the testimony of the false witness and the judge's decision to grant custody of Virginia to the churl are labeled sentence. Virginius on the other hand, is allowed to offer no word to counter the sentence leveled against him. That Virginia happens to be, in fact, his daughter, is only a word, easily repressed in the face of the sentence. Perhaps the singularity of the word, the accidental character of factual truth, cannot coexist with the narrative persuasiveness of sentence. What is, is overwritten and overridden by what is authoritatively said. The power of sentence over a mere word is borne out when Virginius delivers his own sentence in turn. He has decided the only choices available for Virginia are shame or death, in part because of Virginia's very name. Virginia be the nama, there ben two ways, either death or shama, that thou must suffer. O gem of chastite, in patience tak thou the death, for this is me sentence. Daughter, he said, Virginia by name, there are two ways, either death or shame, that you must suffer. O gem of chastity, in patience take your death, for this is my sentence. Great parenting. In contrast to this sentence, Virginia asked to be allowed to complain a little spasa, and each of her little speeches is characterized as a word, insistently so. With that word, she feel a swoon anon, 
and with that word she soon fell swooning. And with that word she pried him full ofta, and with that word she begged him again and again. And with that word a swoon adun she feel, and with that word she fell down in a swoon. Against her swooning single words stand the various sentences of the judge, Claudius the false witness, and her own father. So, when we are offered a moral reading at the end that ignores Virginia, it feels like a repetition of Apius and Virginius's unjust acts. That is, this sentence is also achieved in both the corrupt judgment we saw and in this insufficient moral capstone by erasing Virginia. It is a death sentence. We may ask with Virginia, is there no grace? Is there no remedia? Is there no reading that can make her fate intelligible as part of the meaning of the tale? The moral we're given at the tale's conclusion, the declarative moral of the story, certainly does not achieve it. And Chaucer, in the character of the host, as well as in the reminders of the violent results of sentence within the tale itself, makes us feel that inadequacy deeply. The story of Apius and Virginius, historical thing notable, is presented for moral instruction. But when it becomes the story of Virginia, the girl, the story casts an ironic light on the notion that we should model our own decisions on paragons of the past. We can see the failure of historical exempla in Virginia's own appeal to her father to give her a little time to lament her fate before her head off smoot, that is, before he smites off her head. For pardi, yep to, no, wrong one, where are you at? Oh, no, just one, thanks, okay. <clears throat> Okay. <laughs> for pardi, yepte yaf his daughter grasa, for to complain, er he her slew, alas. For pardon, Jephthah gave his daughter permission to lament before he killed her. <laughs> the story of Jephthah and his daughter does nothing to instruct Virginia and her father in how to avoid the pitfalls of possessing virtue and beauty in an unjust world. It simply instructs them in the proper forms of pre-beheading speechifying. This appears to be more like etiquette rules or stage directions than a form of true moral instruction. This irony recalls the slide you've already seen, <clears throat> recalls us as well to the physician's earlier claim that Virginia's own life might serve as an example. For in here, living maidens meet and read, as in a book, every good word or dead that longeth to a maiden virtuous. For in her life, maidens might read, as in a book, every good word or deed that belongs to a virtuous maid. So if we maidens want Virginia's story to give us instruction in how to do right and live long, are we just as misguided as she is in looking to Jephthah's daughter? Do historical things notable leave us just as much at sea as they did her? The physician takes it as a certainty that stories, particularly historical stories with sooths and tents, are legitimately instructive because they are true. However, it may be this very reality that leaves readers like the host with the feeling that conclusive moral readings of the kind the physician offered are out of place. The unsettling effects of verisimilitude, realness, are perhaps most evident in the person of Virginia. Rather than serving merely as a vehicle for a lesson about judicial abuses, Virginia resists the work of sentence-making by being insistently unartificial. In fact, the physician begins his tale with a speech given by nature herself, vaunting her skill in creating a perfection, that is, Virginia, that human art is incapable of matching. This signals to us from the outset that Virginia is to be taken as something not made by human hands, but existing as a natural being, beyond art. 
nor does Virginia herself employ artifice. She does not speak in counterfeited terms, but is genuine and unaffected. In addition, as the doctor reminds us, she was an historical person, despite how conveniently her name fits her role in the tale. The story is at pains, then, to emphasize her distance from art of all kinds, and from the storyteller's art in particular. Virginia's distance from artifice may also be the source of her association with chance happenings. In an artful story, everything happens for a reason. But for poor, natural, artless, historical Virginia, some things just happen. And as the host's alternate reading of the story, with its lamentation on the vicissitudes of fortune, points out, this association with chance and facticity destabilizes the easy moralizing of the physician. Virginia suffers her terrible fate in part because she just so happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. <clears throat> it just so befell, that is, it just so happened. And so befell this juge his Ian cast upon this maid. And so befell soon after on a die. It just so happened that the judge saw her. It just so happened the judge knew a guy who was ready to perjure himself in service to his lechery. And so it goes. Even Virginius sees this chance element in their fate. He does not bemoan injustice or appeal to the gods for, to know the reasons for what has happened. His attitude is more along the lines of, damn the luck, alas that ever apius thee sigh. It's just too bad he happened to spot you. Pity for the maid, which nearly gave the host his cardinacle, seems tied up with a lively sense that what happened to her was beyond her control, and that her death was something beyond or outside of the intelligible world, the intelligible system of sin and retribution that the physician's conclusive and concluding moral reading relies on. <clears throat> it is the verisimilitude, the realness of Virginia, both her unartificiality and her vulnerability to undeserved and random misfortune, that calls the physician's moral certainty into question. Is it then the case that telling human life as it is lived, with its conflicting perspectives and artless happenings, undermines the process of crafting moral intelligibility in narrative? That is, does being true to life make moral clarity in story impossible? If that's so, it's a disturbing state of affairs, and one that sends the entire company seeking for some alternative. The host wants sweets or beer or a merry tale to cleanse his palate of the emotionally unsupportable randomness of events in the physician's tale. Accordingly, he solicits one of the most morally suspect members of the band, the partner, to tell a merry tale. If stories can't effectively teach morals, then we may as well bring on the popcorn. But the rest of the company objects. Perhaps they too feel distressed by the moral uncertainty that both the physician's weak epigram and the host's fatalistic and morally chaotic counter-reading have presented, but they do not reach for solace. Instead, they ask the partner to tell us some mortal thing that we may learn some wit. Tell us some moral thing so we can learn some wisdom. Perhaps the answer to the insufficiently convincing moral conclusion to the physician's tale is not to take refuge in solace, but rather to pass the torch to a more skillful crafter of sentence. The partner is a bit of a dark horse candidate for the teller of some moral thing. <clears throat> As a partner, a semi-legitimate but generally disliked clerical personage who trafficked in forgiveness for a farthing, he would be reviled as a stain on clerical authority, a quack and a snake oil salesman, and likely a thief and seducer to boot. Further, the general prologue introduces our particular partner as a vain, greedy, silver-tongued manipulator, and the partner himself, in the prologue to his own tale, admits to being a lying liar who would con the widow out of her last mite to pay for his pedicure, <laughs> loosely speaking. <laughs> he is marked from first to last by a general air of moral laxity and unseriousness of all sorts. 
In other respects, however, the partner is just the man for the job. He begins his command moral performance by extolling both his talents as an orator and the unwavering unity of his theme, as if rhetorical prowess and consistently interpretable moral meaning were inextricably intertwined. The moral of the story will not be clumsy in the partner's hands, nor will it be ambiguous. His favorite. His sentence is always the same. Radix malorum est cupiditas. Greed is the root of evil. His ultimate declaration of meaning is perfectly predictable, though he offers a great variety of stories, sermons, japes, and tales in service to his perennial proposition. Despite his own debased character as a storyteller, he has the virtue of moral clarity and long practice at making his matter suit his meaning. The partner begins his tale with a kind of exhibition, demonstrating how he can turn a variety of stories to serve the Radix Malorum Escupiditas program. The story of Herod and John the Baptist? Greed. Seneca? Well, he's against drunkenness, which is a form of sensuality, and you guessed it, greed. The whole story of the fall of man and the need for salvation in Christ? Greed. After a series of many sermons on various vices rooted in greed, the partner begins his tale proper. In it, three boisterous and, need I say it, greedy young gamblers decide that they wish to find death and kill him in revenge for his excessive predations in their neighborhood. On their path, they encounter and are very rude to an old man who tells them that they will find death under a tree nearby. Under said tree, they find instead a bag of gold. Being greedy, they decide to keep it for themselves and plot together how they may effectively do so without suspicion. As part of their plan, one of the three wastrels goes to town, where, of course, he buys rat poison, the fatal qualities of which are described with great relish, and puts it in wine bottles intended for his fellows. His fellows, in the meantime, plot to murder him upon his return under the pretense of a mock scuffle and to split his share. In short order, the youngest one who went to town is knifed, and the other two drink to their success and fall summarily into a Shakespearean pile of corpses. After, after roughly 400 lines of sermonizing and exposition, these three deaths are accomplished in the space of 10 lines. The rat poison gets more airtime. <laughs> the injudicious and greedy young men being duly punished, the partner's reading of the story is offered. Now, good men, God forgive you your trespass and wear you from the scene of avarice. Now, good men, God forgive you your sins and keep you from the sin of greed. Where the physician's moral conclusion rang violently untrue and sent the host into palpitations, nothing is particularly amiss here. It seems fair to say that the moral of the story of three young men who are killed by their freely chosen debauchery and greed is to beware the sin of greed. But how is the partner able to make a conclusive and convincing moral statement while telling an enjoyable story to boot when the physician came off as oafish and tone deaf. We saw that the physician's moral epigram was undercut by the presence of Virginia as a product of nature rather than artifice, an historical personage and a victim of chance. All of these aspects, artlessness, actuality, accident, made his moral reading ring false. But the partner makes clear as he brags to the pilgrims about fleecing the medieval peons and as he reduces any and every story, anecdotal, historical, ecclesiastical, to a preset theme that he labors under no fidelity to truth, either natural or factual. This freedom is most dramatic in the partner's treatment of chance. The partner gives a sermon directed against the evils of gambling, the only vice not directly glossed by the partner as an example of radix malorum es cupiditas. And it may seem that the partner stumbles, 
marring the unity of his theme when he rails against chance. But chance, or accident, is the very enemy of moral clarity. If his goal is to reduce the complexities of life to a simple moral theme, and one that will encourage his hearers to open their purses, it is part and parcel of this plan to disparage chance. Unlike the physician, the partner does not allow accident to sow the seeds of moral doubt. Indeed, in the tale proper, we see that the workings of fortune are turned to the service of the moral order. The gamblers think it is chance that they have found the gold under the tree. This tresor hath fortune unto us, Yevin. Fortune has given us this treasure. But the tale tells us that they find the treasure as a direct and intelligible result of their sinful actions. The two hazarders who have murdered the third are said to drink the poison by chance. And with that word it hopped him parkas to talk the bottle there the poison was. And with that word he happened, by chance, to take the bottle where the poison was. But we know that they drink the poison as a direct result of greed. The greed of their plotting compatriot and their own greed as plotters and guzzlers. And he drunk and yafis falawa drink also, for which anon they storve and both a two. And he drank and he gave his fellow a drink too, and so they soon keeled over the both of them. No other end was possible. The story is pleasing in part because it makes all of the apparent accidents of the story converge in a single, unmistakable moment of moral intelligibility. Greed is evil and it is punished. And in case we are inclined to quibble that perhaps there are hidden motives or unseen perspectives that might shift our thinking about who deserves what, the intent as well as the actions of the evildoers is known and clearly stated. For this was utterly his full intent, to slend him both and never to repent. For this was wholly his full intent, to slay them both and never to repent. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Not only did he kill the guy, he intended to never repent for it. This is wrong, on purpose, without a hint of repentance, now or in the future. Moral clarity is accomplished by the rehabilitation of chance and fortune into an orderly system where sin is fully known and instantly punished. Phew. The partner's story assures us that we need not worry that the complexities of life make moral intelligibility impossible in stories. As such, it's a model of a certain kind of moral certainty in storytelling. But, alas, we'd better not get too comfortable because the moral clarity of the story is immediately revealed as a trick and a manipulation. It's old hat for the partner, and clearly motivated by his desire to extort donations from listeners eager to distance themselves from the greed that killed the hazarders. He concludes his tale with a wink to the pilgrims to whom he has described how this con works. And lo, Sidis, thus he preach. So I preach. There it is. That's how the sausage is made. The conclusiveness of the partner's moral reading is perhaps not, then, an instance of more expert sentence, but rather a certain kind of solace, and solace of an empty and hypocritical sort. I love this part. He's describing what it's like to watch him preach. He refers to his preaching as a jape and a joy because of the entertaining nature of his style. He preacha so as ye han heard before, and tell an hundred false japas more. Mina hands and me tongue gone so yerna that it is joya to say me business. I preach just as you, have, as you have heard before and tell a hundred sly jokes more. My hands and my tongue get so busy that it's a pleasure to watch me work. 
as he tells it, the partner is well aware of the desires of his typical audience of village absolution seekers. He seeks to please them, in a sense, with his moral stories, and he does so by giving them something they can well report and hold. In this example, Talis Old. He's also cognizant of the desires of this particular audience of pilgrims with whom he travels. Now that ye have drunk a draught of malty ale, a corny ale, be God, he hope he shall you tell a thing that shall by reason be at your leaking. Now that I've drunk some malty brew, by God, I hope I'll tell you something that will be reasonably to your liking. His goal is that his tale will suit their liking as well as the draught of ale suited his. Thus, in the partner's tale, we get moral clarity as a delusion or manipulation and a pleasing, even intoxicating lie. But of course, moral clarity in story, if it is revealed as a trick of the unscrupulous to manipulate us into actions contrary to our own interests, cannot achieve the kind of genuine instruction it was wanted for. This is evident when the partner, after concluding his moving condemnation of greed and revealing that it is meant to line his pockets at the expense of his hearers, proceeds to offer the pilgrims the chance to seek his services as a partner. In particular, he singles out the host as most enveloped in sin and invites him to kiss the relics and unbuckle his purse. But rather than being grateful for the partner's solution to the shaky and insufficient moralizing of the physician, the host is incensed that he should be asked to take the partner's game seriously. There follows some of the coarsest and most violent language to pass between the pilgrims. If you want the line numbers, I can give them to you later. <laughs> As the host threatens to cut off the partner's testicles and compares his so-called relics of saints to streaky trousers. Thou wouldest mock me kiss thine old brech and swear it were relic of a saint, though it were with the fundament de paint. You would make me kiss your old trousers and swear they were a saint's relics, even with your ass stains. That was a hard one to translate. It is probably unpalatable to most of us to kiss the relics offered by the partner. And similarly, we might not be satisfied with the idea that moral teaching in stories can only be effectively or convincingly done through insincerity and manipulation. Chaucer doesn't seem to be satisfied either as he continues to worry the question of the moral capacities of story at the close of the Canterbury Tales with the Manciple's Tale and the Parson's Tale. In them, we get a sort of mirror image of the problem set out by the physician's clumsy moralizing and the partner's smooth manipulations. The Manciple, like the physician, is laughably bad at pulling off the epigrammatic moral conclusion he thinks it necessary to provide. The Parson, like the partner, offers an alternative. The Manciple's Tale is a retelling of an Ovidian transformation story. In the Canterbury version, Phoebus Apollo has married a human wife of whom he is jealously suspicious and who he keeps under guard, watched by his pet crow, at this time a mellifluous white-feathered bird, alone in a palace. She, as you might guess if you've read Ovid or Chaucer, takes a lover. The crow reports this to Phoebus, who in a rage murders his wife with his famous arrows. He is overcome with regret for his rash action, and he curses the crow that told him of his wife's infidelity. He turns the crow's feathers black and robs it of its beautiful voice that was the source, says Phoebus, of all his pain. What's the moral of this story? Well, the Manciple, in a long commentary in which he ventriloquizes his dear departed mother for upwards of 50 lines, is here to tell you. Hopefully, yes. <clears throat> 
The Mansible quotes his mother, giving 20, literally, at least, versions of this final statement. Me sonne bewar and be nun auctor noe of teedings, whether thy ben falsa or true. My son, take care not to be the inventor of stories, whether false or true. True tales, false tales, doesn't matter, don't tell them. It's best just to nod your head. I'm not being hyperbolic here. Me sonne spect not but with the head thou beck. My son, don't speak, just nod your head instead. <clears throat> the moral is keep your mouth shut. No comment then on the inappropriateness of murder as a solution to domestic troubles. We should ignore, I suppose, <laughs> the evidence offered again and again in the Canterbury Tales that jealousy brings its own punishment. Sorry, husband, that's your phone there. <laughs> 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 Uh, just, just keep your mouth shut, is the moment. <laughs> <clears throat> Tell no tales, says the penultimate tale of the Canterbury Tales, a large collection of tales that was meant to contain even more tales. <laughs> Again, we are faced not only with the apparent inadequacy of conclusive moral readings offered by the teller's summations, but the story shows us the violence done by fidelity to those inadequate readings. While the Mansible's clumsy moral does not elicit the same horrified response from the host, perhaps because Phoebus's wife is nameless and speechless, perhaps because she's not virtuous, like the physician's tale, the Mansible's tale is followed by explicitly moral fare. Everyone's favorite Canterbury tale. Following the Mansible, a tale is solicited from the parson, who is, like the partner, a professional moralizer. The difference is that while the partner is the unmitigated picture of insincerity, the parson is put forward as a paragon of simple truth, goodness, direct action, and purity. We've seen this kind of solution a character like the partner offers to the insufficiency and violence of conclusive moral readings. Manipulation toward a false moral intelligibility, dirty pants sold as holy relics. But the parson is entirely different. Not mercenary, not a speechifier, but a man of action and truth. And given that the parson is the moral opposite to the partner, as dramatically marked by his uprightness as the partner is by his low-downness, we might hope that the bed he makes us is one we feel clean lying in. What kind of story does a man like this tell then? Well, no story at all. Tell us a fabula non for cocus bonus. This person answered all atonus, thou gettest fabula non he told for me. For Paul that reacheth unto Timothy repreveth him that wife and soothfastnesse, and tellen fablus and switch wretchednesse, we should he so in draff out of me fest, when he may so in wet, if that me lest. For which he say, if that you list to her, morality and virtuous matera, and then that ye will yev me audience, I will you tell a mere tala in prose, to knit up all this fest and mark an end. Tell us a fable, quick, for Jesus' sake. This parson spoke right up. You won't get any fable out of me. For Paul, who writes unto Timothy, reprimands those who reject uh, truth and tell tales and such rubbish. Why should I so chaff from my hand when I can so wheat if I so please? So I say, if you are ready to hear morality and virtuous matter, and if then you will give me your ear, I will tell a cheering tale in prose to sew up the festivities and make an end. The parson tells the company, who are expressly gathered to tell tales, mostly in verse, that fables are immoral and that poetry is not his thing. <sighs> tales are chaff, and true moral sentence is the wheat. Knitter up all this feste, indeed. This fest knitter, which is what I intend to call party poopers from now on, 
proceeds to give us the longest entry into the contest, a taxonomy of sin and a disquisition on methods for true contrition and redemption. It offers no story as such and no poetry. The Parson seems to concur with the Manciple's explicit claim that all tale-telling is dangerous, while also responding to the implicit issue that the misfit of moral epigram and story raises, that conclusive morality is inappropriate to realistic or entertaining stories. His response to the difficulties of moral storytelling is to deny the appropriateness of stories entirely, and instead to give unadulterated moral instruction. Perhaps this is the best solution to the incompatibility of moral finality with narrative verisimilitude. Perhaps a delight in story for itself is a moral weakness, and when we get serious, we should just drop the japing and get to the sentence. This is not an indefensible stance, though it runs counter to my own gluttony for storytelling, but those of us who like our tales might take some solace in the fact that the Parsons' rejection of story comes at the end of the road. If we take, as many readers do, the pilgrimage of the Canterbury Tales as an emblem of the journey of human life, then it may be that along that journey, story is permitted to ease our way, more a palliative than a cure for our ills. For truly, says the host at the outset of their travels, confort ne merth is nun to rida be the waia dom as the stoon. For truly it is no comfort or pleasure to ride along one's way dumb as the stone. There is a deathly quality to a storyless journey. Even if we admit there may be something unchristian about fables, though Jesus might disagree, the tombstone has, the doomstone has something of the tomb about it. And indeed, the parson's silencing of japes knits up this fest and makes an end. But this comes after a trek profuse with tales, various and raucous and complex. Maybe it's tolerable even to us story gluttons that at the end of all that, we close with morality and virtuousness at the expense of the solace of fable. But what if we want moral instruction that's compatible with the needs of the journey, not designed for its end, but for a life in progress? What if we are unable or unwilling to abrogate the apparent human requirement for and delight in story? Is the answer manipulation? Again, this is not an untenable claim if we put aside our possible distaste for it. Perhaps the answer really is that if we want moral clarity, we should ignore the real presence of confusion and undecidability in our lives and instead use all the power of art and artifice to spin moral intelligibility out of chance and disorder. This might be pleasing and even, in a sense, effective. But the company's response to the partner shows us that as soon as this insincerity is unmasked, it's no longer effective as moral instruction and is in fact viscerally repulsive. It appears then that in response to the apparent insufficiencies of conclusive moral readings to account for true-to-life uncertainties, or to flip that on its head, in response to the failure of rich and truthful storytelling to submit to moral clarification, that is in response to the moral flops of the physicians and Mansipal's tales, Two of the pilgrims offer us two conceivable solutions. There's the partner's response, absolute insincerity, which makes sentence itself into a game or a cruel trick meant to fleece its listeners. Or there's the parson's response, absolute earnestness of moral intent and total refusal of the pleasure of stories, which seems more appropriate to a deathbed than to the moral negotiations of living people. Depending on our own inclinations, we might find one or the other of these options more or less repugnant, but neither seems to offer a model for a genuinely moral tale that both delights and instructs. Maybe Chaucer's telling us there's no such thing as a story that is enjoyable as story and also genuinely morally instructive. We can have morals and we can have stories, but we can't have both. This is hard to swallow. Given our persistent belief, even in these debased times, that stories can, will, and should make us better. 
But is Chaucer really suggesting that our belief in the moral force of delightful stories is a mistake? Mere wishful thinking? I don't think he is. The internal tensions and countercurrents of the Canterbury Tales point out for us the failures of the partners and Parsons' tales. They do not effectively redress the apparent incompatibility of delight with instruction staged by the tales to which they respond. But this failure is rooted in the notion, one that Chaucer ultimately dismantles, that the moral of the story is to be found in the moral of the story. That is, the partner in the parson failed to reconcile the pleasures of story with its capacity for moral teaching precisely because they misunderstand moral meaning-making in stories as a declarative act, a propositional statement of moral import that finalizes and totalizes its meaning. But Chaucer gives us another way to think about how stories might do moral work. Stories need not seed morality as their purview, only the authority of final sentence. Two of the tales we've considered today, the physician's and the partner's tales seem to spoof the process of extracting moral significance from stories. Sorry, the, that should say manciples, not partners. <clears throat> We're revisiting the physicians and the manciples tales. Those two tales, don't let this fool you, seem to spoof the process of extracting moral significance from stories and further to suggest that sentence is death. But even in these very tales, that is, the physician's and manciple's tales, we find alternatives both to manipulative, insincere certainty and to abandonment of story. Alternatives that preserve a moral function for storytelling. To, preserve, to explore those alternatives, I'd like to spend some time with a few moments from the physician's and manciple's tales. These are examples of what I think of as midstream morals, as opposed to the homilistic glossing we got in the concluding moments of the physician's tale and the manciple's tale, if you remember those. If, we if what we are looking for is a model for how we might sincerely make vital moral intelligibility and make it without resorting to fatally conclusive readings of sentence, then it behooves us to attend to the attempts at meaning-making meaning and moral commentary that both the physician and Mansible make while their stories are still in progress. The physician's first attempt at moralizing is as off the mark as his last, but it does not do the same kind of violence as his concluding words. As he introduces Virginia to his listeners, describing her virtue and circumspection at great length, the physician takes a long detour, some 25 lines, to address those who are charged with guarding the virtue of young persons. From this he derives the following aphorism. Under a shepherd a soft and negligent, the wolf hath many a sheep and lamb to rent. Under a soft and negligent shepherd, the wolf has torn many a sheep and lamb to bits. If the guardian is too lax, the innocent will be eaten. In contrast to the finalized moral at the end of the story, the physician himself immediately points out the insufficiency of this reading to the situation of Virginia, even if he doesn't seem to particularly notice that that's a problem. After his advice delivered to those who are my stresses of young virtue, we learn immediately that Virginia, for her part, needs no such my stress. Sufficeth un ensample nuas hera, for ye muterna gain to my matera. This mind of which ye wold is tala expressa, so kept to herself, here netted no my stress. One example for now will suffice, for I must return to my subject. The maid I speak of in this tale governed herself, so that she needed no governess. The ensample and the matera the moral claim and the particulars are, in this provisional attempt, seen to be at odds. As a conclusive rendering of the sentence of the tale, such a moral would be as ridiculous as the one the physician ultimately provides, and it would do as little to truly characterize the situation in which Virginia is placed. However, if we try it on for size, we might find that it does have some explanatory power, despite its inappropriateness as a final reading. 
Under a ship herd, a soft and negligent, the wolf hath many a ship and lamb to rent. Certainly we can think of Virginia as a lamb rent by a wolf. Who then is the shepherd, soft and negligent, that fails to protect her? Despite the story's failure to condemn him, this aphorism points to Virginius as the sinner in this tale. Does his sin lie in not keeping his daughter under guard? Perhaps not. We're told she needed no guard because her virtue was true. However, sheep do not need guarding because of their sinfulness, but because of the rapacious beasts that threaten them. Was it negligence to allow Virginia to go to church, where it so befell that she was seen by the judge? Maybe, but perhaps the mistake was focusing on the sheep instead of the wolf in the first place. The failed shepherd was not soft and negligent toward his charge, but perhaps he was too soft toward the threats that beset her. On the other hand, it's not negligence or softness toward bad actors that allows them to force Virginia's hand. When we try to understand the complexities of the story in terms of this moral, some of them come clear and some of them are obscured, but we're not required to resolve all of them into this sentence. The physician himself takes it up, looks at it through a prism, and then sets it aside as inappropriate to the character of the particular girl in question. But the things it allows us to momentarily see are not set aside so easily. Virginius is a kind of failed shepherd, even as some of the wild hairs of the story peek out from under that particular cap. In the end, it doesn't quite fit, but the attempt to understand the story as morally instructive can be made here, and made genuinely, without the manipulations of false certainty, in a way that grants life and breath to the complexities both of chance and character, and grants us a true and usable insight. Like the physician's tale, the Mansible's tale is also interrupted by a long moral aside, which we will look at here in a moment. <laughs> Am I not hitting the thing? Ah, there we go. But, God it woot, there my no man embrace as to destroy a thing which that natura hath naturally set in a creature, tak any bread and put it in a cage, for ever this bread will do his busyness to as chop out of his cage, if him I, his liberté, this breed, desireth I. Let take a cut. A she-wolf hath also a villain's kind, the lewdest wolf that she my fiend, or lest of reputation that will she talk, and Tima when he loose to Hana mock. When we're first introduced to Phoebus's jealousy, we get this meditation on the difficulty of turning any creature aside from its own nature. God knows no man may contrive to prevent a thing that nature has naturally set in a creature, Take any bird and put it in a cage. This bird will forever do anything to escape from his cage if he can. This bird always wants his liberty. Take a cat. A she-wolf also has a base nature. The commonest wolf that she may find or of the least standing him will she take whenever she pleases to get her a mate. Birds will be birds. She-wolf gonna she-wolf. And in particular, it is animal nature to follow one's lust, regardless of the worthiness of its object. These claims have a clear bearing on the tale in question. The jealousy of Phoebus cannot make his wife faithful. He cannot quench her desires by keeping her caged, and she does indeed turn from her godly husband to a lesser human lover in her lustiness. But strangely, this moral is again immediately rejected as not applying to the story. It's glossed as referring to men rather than to women. All of these ensembles specky be these men that been untrue, and nothing be women. I give all these examples concerning men who have been untrue. I say nothing about women, says the Manciple. All of this meditation on unfaithfulness does not apply, apparently, to women. We all know plenty of examples, says the Manciple, of men who are not satisfied with their worthy wives and seek elsewhere for pleasure. 
Perhaps we do know of such examples, but the story at hand gives us a woman who does this, not a man. So why does the manciple kick off the shoe that pretty clearly fits? Why does he create an unnecessary gap between moral and story here, explicitly exempting the story at hand from the fairly convincing reading that he offers? Unlike the maladapted morals that close the physician's and manciple's tale, the manciple's midstream reading of his own tale doesn't offer us a conclusiveness that rings false or incomplete. Rather, it hints at a shakiness where we might have taken the proposition to be solid. It asks us to take what seems to be a fitting moral and interrogate whether it truly explains the facts of the case. Let's look at it again. First problem, the moral purports to explain the feelings of the unfaithful spouse, but we hear no word in the tale from Phoebus's caged wife, only his caged crow. We can be sure that she is constrained by Phoebus and that she eventually takes a lover, but we cannot be sure that the reading offered here articulates her reasons for doing so. Second, if the moral is, if you try to change the nature of things, you will fail, that suggests that the actions of both the crow and Phoebus were just as inevitable as the woman's. In the, in the tale, Phoebus curses the crow's loquacity and his own rash and righteous anger. They're merely following their own natures. Should they try to change them? We've been told that's impossible. How then can we fault the crow for singing or Phoebus Apollo for godly wrath? The claim that you can't change a tiger's stripes does not, it turns out, effectively address the moral dimensions of the tale. And further, this truism is not as true as we might think. Not surprisingly, in a tale taken from Ovid, it turns out to be quite possible, at least for Phoebus, to change the nature of things. The crow goes from a honey-voiced white-feathered pet to a squawking doom bird clad in black. Once the story creates a little daylight with its disjunctive gender reversal between the seductively appropriate moral and the tale, we start to see that there are places where it fits a little too loosely. Unlike Mother Manciple's ironically garrulous and clearly flat-footed advice to always keep your mouth shut, the Manciple's midstream moralizing demonstrates that even nimble and complex moral readings may miss some element of the story. Where the physician's ultimately ill-fitting interpretive interruption offers some sentence when taken as a makeshift, the Manciple's apparently apt reading gives a wink to its own deficiencies, prompting readers to question more closely even those moral readings that seem to do the job. But in both the physician's tale and the Manciple's tale, we get examples of a kind of moral reading that allows us the complex pleasure of story. These morals in medius res do not pretend to the certainty the pardoner gained through the manipulation of recalcitrant accident, nor do they set aside story as a distraction or indulgence with the parson. By presenting a moral while the story is in motion, they provoke the reader to engage in a kind of moral calisthenics. Instead of simply asking us to affirm or reject a final statement of meaning, they exercise us in trying out the fit between a moral reading and the messy details of the story in progress. They ask us to look at the information we have and to entertain possibilities about its significance, to make judgments, to raise doubts about those judgments, to engage in a kind of dialogue between moral intelligibility and the resistant complexities of story. But they do not require us to be finished with that work. We read, we interpret, we read, we adjust, we interpret again. This is not the abdication of moral force, but the calibration of moral force to the slipperiness of true-to-life experience. These provisional morals provide sentence in action, as we speak, without a period. Perhaps we are not then foolish or naive to look for help from stories. We might be credulous if we think that storytellers are particularly moral beings, and we might be right to be suspicious of rigidly conclusive readings offered as total sentence or fully realized meaning, 
But we're not wrong to ask what stories mean for us as moral beings, to try to make something of them. This attempt is conducted in the low-stakes world of the story, but that world can be a convincing rehearsal of our own when it includes chance, conflicting perspectives, unresolvable details. This practice prepares us to meet the moral challenges of our own lives, which, as long as we are experiencing them, are unfinished stories that can't be summed up or totalized. We need a moral sense that can do more than write a good epitaph. If we reject the moral significance of story, toss it away as an indulgence or even a sin, we lose the chance to train ourselves as moral readers of our own lives as they happen. But if we take our own readings as too conclusive, or worse, the bad faith readings of others as too conclusive, we might end up kissing someone's old breeches and believing we've been redeemed. Thank you.